Sunday morning, we're studying through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. We're in the book of Isaiah. Sunday mornings, we're taking a smaller portion of the larger portion that we look at in the evening uh, to examine it and, uh, with a little more thoroughness than we can in an overview. If you're with us today and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles with lots of Bibles. And uh, just get their attention. They'll get one into your hands. It'll be marked to where we are uh, already, where we'll be studying this morning. And then please, if you don't own a Bible, God wants everybody to own a Bible and know the Bible. So you own a Bible now. Make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. Isaiah chapter 37, verse 1. And so it was when King Hezekiah heard it, that he tore his clothes covered himself with sackcloth, and went into the house of the Lord. And then he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, Shebna the scribe, and the elders of the priests, covered with sackcloth, to Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos. And they said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of trouble and rebuke and blasphemy. For the children have come to birth, but there's no strength to bring them forth. And it may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the Rebeksha, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to reproach the living God and will rebuke the words which the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. Verse 14. And Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and he spread it before the Lord. And then Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, saying, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim, you are God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Hear all the words of Sennacherib which he has sent to reproach the living God. Truly, Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they destroyed them. And now, therefore, O Lord, our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord, you alone. And then finally, verse 36, Then the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when the people arose early in the morning, there were the corpses, all dead. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for your word, the exhortation, the edification, the comfort that is found in it. Thank you for this wonderful, wonderful book that we get to study and that makes such changes in our life by your Holy Spirit. We thank you for how we come to know you, what you're like and your heart and your desire for us. Thank you so much. We pray that you freshly fill us now with your Holy Spirit, that he would be very present in this room and through your word to minister these eternal truths to each of us this morning. We pray for this work of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Dr. Henry Kissinger, some of you remember him well. 
He was the former U.S. Secretary of State under both the Nixon administration and also the Ford administration. He was famously quoted in a 1969 uh, article in the New York Times and uh, saying the following. He said, and if you remember, many of you, 1969 was a very, very busy year in the United States of America. He said, there cannot be a crisis next week. My schedule is already full. And it's very funny in, a, in the finest humor that there is, and that is dry humor. The point he's making is that crises really are very inconvenient things. They never come at a convenient time. They're almost impossible to plan for. They just typically, a crisis will erupt out of nowhere suddenly, and we find ourselves in the middle of it. And since a crisis is something that we typically can't prepare for, then the next best thing for us to do when they come into our life is to know how to handle them when they do appear. And when they appear in all of their ferocity and when they appear in all of their suddenness so that we know how to navigate those kind of chapters in our life and everyone experiences them sooner or later. And the passage that we're looking at this morning really gives us invaluable uh, instruction for the child of God for how to handle a major crisis that explodes within our lives. Some of you are in the middle of just such a crisis here uh, today. And some others of you, it will be next week or a year from now or 10 years from now or 20 years from now. But very few Christians escape this kind of thing in the course of our pilgrimage. So the instruction is invaluable to all of us, whether we need to draw on it immediately this morning or we need to draw on it at a later time. We notice the crisis that this king by the name of Hezekiah was facing. Hezekiah was the king of a southern kingdom of Judah, so a king over the Jews. And he was a good king, and he was a godly king. He is one of only eight kings in the whole history of Israel, northern kingdom of Israel, southern kingdom of Judah, to be described by God himself as having done that which was right in the eyes of the Lord. So this is one of the good guys, a really, really good guy. And he ruled at a time of tremendous international instability and upheaval. The Assyrian Empire was very much in an expansionist mode during his reign. It had conquered virtually all of the Middle East. All that remained to be conquered yet was the southern kingdom of Judah and Egypt. And both of them were next on uh, Assyria's menu. It was during the reign of King Hezekiah that Assyria decided now in earnest to conquer Judah and to occupy the land and deport all of its citizens. The Assyrian army, as we've seen in the past, was very, very ruthless and very, very bloodthirsty. If you defied them, if you resisted their attempt to overtake or conquer your country or your city, they considered that an insult and they were going to make a lesson out of you. To resist them would mean 
very often that once they did conquer your city, they would kill every man, woman, and child without any regard at all for them, for age, for sex, for anything. They would kill every single one of them in the city, not leave a single survivor. Uh, sometimes they would conquer a city that resisted them, and they would leave the men and the, the women and the children to survive, but then they would decapitate every single man within the city, take their heads and pile them up in a great pile at the gate of the city. There was a method to their madness. They were kind of the early or the ancient world um, experts on uh, intimidation. And so the idea was that once they did this kind of thing, that they would only have to do it a number of times before the words would spread. Listen, you don't want to take these people on. It's a lot easier to surrender to them than to fight them. And here they were, these masters of what we know today as psychological uh, uh, warfare. Assyria had invaded at this time the southern kingdom of Judah with an army that numbered just short of 200,000 men, 185,000 to be exact. These were seasoned warriors. They had fought for years for Assyria, for the expansion of the Assyrian army. These weren't people that were pulled out of the reserves or were uh, unfamiliar and had to be brought up to speed on warfare. They were the finest military machine that existed in the world at that time. They had already, by the time we come to chapter 37, already conquered uh, virtually all of the nation of Judah. They had conquered the uh, 46 cities that constituted Judah's main defense of Jerusalem. They built these fortified cities knowing that any attack that would come against Jerusalem would ultimately come from the north because of the geographical and uh, top topographical uh, circumstances related to Israel. They would always have to come from the north. So they put these series of cities together, very formidable cities, in which to resist or blunt any attack so that no one would ever be successful of blowing through all of them and ultimately being where a Syrian army was, and that is at the very doorstep of the gates of, of Jerusalem. But Sennacherib came in, Sennacherib being the king of Assyria, and that army came into the land, and they just blew through those fortified cities like they were nothing. And at the point in the chapter, point in the, the account in chapter 37, they have conquered all of Judah. They have conquered all of those fortified cities. They've conquered all of the villages, all of the towns, all of the land. The only single speck of Judah that they haven't conquered is the city of Jerusalem. And now this great army is encamped uh, there at, uh, at the city. And uh, Sennacherib wrote following the campaign or during the campaign in the conquest of Judah, he boasted in how easily and readily he conquered these fortified cities, conquered Judah, and then he described what we've got going on here in chapter 37. He described having shut Hezekiah up in Jerusalem, in his words, like a bird in a cage. And so that's King Hezekiah's plight. That's his trial that he finds himself in. So if he surrenders the city to Assyria, at best 
They're all going to be deported. They will lose everything they have, their homes, everything they own. They will be taken captive by the Assyrians. The methodology of the Assyrians upon conquering a people was to never allow you to stay in your homeland. They would deport you to some other section of the Assyrian Empire in order to keep the population destabilized and unable to effectively rebel against them. If he surrendered, at best, that's what would occur to every man, woman, and child, including his family and himself, within the city. At worst, if he fought, humanly speaking, uh, the Jews had no hope of, uh, of success. Not only would a large number of the army be slaughtered by the Assyrians, but then Hezekiah bears the responsibility and the weight of knowing that if we resist these people, there's a good chance that they will come in and kill every man, woman, and child who survives uh, the siege of the city. And that's Hezekiah's crisis. And that's a considerable crisis that he finds himself in the middle of. And what he did in his crisis, how he responded to what he was facing, not only would he bear the consequences of his decision-making and his actions, but so would his family, and so would the lives of everyone who is in that city. That's an amazing thing, where you're in the middle of a crisis, where you're, based upon the decision you make, your life hangs in the balance. It is considerably greater responsibility to know that what I do and how I conduct myself in this trial, the very lives of my wife, my children, my family hang in the balance. And then even beyond that for him to know that all of this wonderful mass of God's people in the city of Jerusalem, that their future hung in the balance based upon what it is that he was going to do. Now, the crises that we tend to face in life are considerably smaller in terms of their import or their impact, certainly, than King Hezekiah, because most of us are not kings. But our crises that we face as individual human beings, rarely do they simply affect us, but they typically affect those that we love most in life and then other people who are dependent upon us. And the reason that the account is given to us is not so that we are now an expert on the great trial that Hezekiah was facing. The reason that all of this is laid out is so that you and me, in the crisis that we're facing today in our life, we can look at Hezekiah and say, whatever he did, if what he did with God in this situation ended up working in a situation and in a crisis that is as dire as that situation he was in, then what he did will work for me as a child of God living in Modesto, California or the surrounding area in the year 2015. It's intended to make us realize, wow, I'm in a crisis too. This guy was in an even bigger one. I want to learn everything I can from it because this ends up having a very, very happy ending. And any crisis that we involve God in is going to have a good ending in terms of, uh, of allowing his will to be accomplished. So notice the 
how Hezekiah responded to the crisis. The first thing he did in verse 1 is he went to the house of the Lord. In other words, the crisis, he allowed the crisis in his life to drive him closer to the Lord, deeper in his relationship with the Lord. And, And a crisis is a time always in our lives to go deeper in our relationship with God. The relationship that we had with God yesterday before the crisis ended up in our life, that depth of personal relationship was fine for life as we had it. Our relationship with God, what we knew about God, of his power, of his wisdom, of his love. But now, in one day, this has exploded in my life And I need to know him in a deeper way. I need to know his power, his love, his wisdom, his word, his promises in a way that I never have before. So it's always a time to go deeper in my relationship with the Lord. And not everybody does that in a time of crisis. Not even every Christian does that. Sometimes people are tempted to do the very opposite thing. They will abandon God in the middle of the crisis and or they'll run from him because the crisis has come into their life and it's always a great mistake. Sometimes a crisis will come into the life of a Christian and we're shocked that God would allow so great a trial in our life. Here we are, we're a good person, we're a good Christian, we love God, we walk with Him, we obey Him. How in the world could He do something like this? How could He allow something like this to happen in my life? And there's this idea that even among the best of us, when something like this hits, we somehow have this idea in our minds that if we love God and we walk with Him, that somehow it makes us trial-free or that no great crisis can be will he ever allow to be introduced into our life. And this idea is, is something that is very, very big today. A lot of teaching today that if we just love God and walk with him and we praise him and give him his, the right place in our lives, that everything is going to be... Uh, you know, very, very easy, and it's going to be on top of the world, and it's always going to be positive, and it's always going to be nice. And in my estimation, more and more Christians than ever are unprepared for the fact that God can, in his sovereignty and in his purpose for our lives, allow very difficult things in our life. I won't speak for you, but I will say that almost everything that I've learned about God and about Christianity, certainly virtually All depth that I have in my relationship with God has not come from easy times. It has come from difficult times that have forced me to go deeper in my relationship with Him. And so the importance of recognizing it's not a time to run away from God and to realize as a Christian, yes, it can shock us, it can confuse us. We can wonder, how can He love me and allow something like this to happen? But that is is just, I think those thoughts because I'm not familiar with the scriptures and what it says about how God can sometimes work in our lives or, and, and the difficulty that he will allow. Or, and so I'm unlearned in that vein. I think that some of the verses that correct that misconception, Romans chapter 5 is a good one, Paul wrote. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations. Really? <laughs> That's my addition. He didn't say that. Not only that, but we also glory in tribulations. Here's why. Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. And perseverance, character, and character, hope. And this hope that we've put in God does not disappoint because the love of God 
has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Peter wrote of this same subject. He said, But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. Paul said in writing to the Romans, a little bit of Oakdale, in his blood, he said, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. There are others, I think, that when a crisis comes into their life, they're very much like Jacob. And so rather than drawing closer to God, they draw upon their first response is their own resources, their own cleverness, their own ability to assess. Jacob was a heel catcher in the Old Testament, very smart man, very clever man. And he knew how, when a problem came his way, to look and say, okay, this and this and this, here's the assets, here's the liabilities, here's what I need to do. And the person that's like a Jacob, they're a mover, they're shakers, they're doers. Things don't come into their life and they just sit kind of idly by. It's like, I'm going to fight this thing back and here's what I'm going to do. And they come up with their own plan. And for that kind of a person, a Jacob, very often in a great crisis, God is not their first resource. He's not even uh, their second uh, resort. He is usually their last resort. And again, that's a great mistake as well. The importance of when a great crisis comes into into my life, especially when I'm the kind of person that goes... I I automatically goes into an automatic mode of I fix things, it's what I do, and that's what I'm going to do uh, here. Hezekiah very wisely made the Lord his first resort in the crisis. Sometimes it isn't what happened here, but it sometimes happens in a Christian's life. It certainly has happened in my life through the decades that I've known the Lord. Sometimes we can become so stagnant in our relationship with the Lord, or uh, we can stop growing in our relationship with the Lord, and and it can become a stale relationship. Many, many Christians, in my estimation, hit a place where it's like, okay, this is all I want of God. This is all I want of Christianity. This is the, I, I don't want to be any more holy than I am. I don't want to know God any more than I do. I don't want to need any more history with him than I already have. What I have with him is fine. I've got him kind of put in this nice convenient place within my life. Everything looks great. And so this is the, all I want with God. This is all the relationship I want with God until uh, I go to heaven and then everything will be perfect and then it can be whatever it is. The problem is, is that a relationship involves two people. So you and I may be very happy with some compartmentalized or limited relationship with God, but God may not be happy with it. He may not be pleased with the depth of it. And he may want to take it, that, the depth of that relationship into a much deeper place. And one of the ways that he can cause that to happen is to allow a great crisis to occur in our life that forces us then to go deeper in our relationship uh, once again with him, to bring a freshness to it, a desperation to it, an intimacy and an immediacy to that relationship. Nothing is bad in life that forces me to draw closer to God. 
that forces me to go onto my knees and forces me to go deeper in my relationship with the Lord. So he turned immediately to the Lord. Second, in going to the house of the Lord, verse 1, Hezekiah wasn't just drawing closer to God, but he was also putting himself in a spiritual environment where he would be surrounded by spiritual people. There's fewer spiritual people hung out at that temple. And so when a crisis comes into our lives, it's so important not to, as the writer of the book of Hebrews says, to forsake the assembling together of the saints. It's the world's worst time to stop going to church or hanging around other Christians and operating in our relationship with them. It's not the time to isolate. It's the time to get around other Christians for their spiritual support, uh, their spiritual perspective, spiritual health that they can then bring into our lives as they surround our lives when our lives are spinning a little bit. And sometimes in a great crisis, we become disoriented. We don't think clearly. We don't feel clearly. And sometimes we need someone who is on the outside of the situation. They know God. They love God. They know his word. And they can speak clearly, see our situation with a clarity that we cannot at the moment see see it with. And then speak with that kind of clarity. Speak spiritually. Speak health into spiritual health into our life and into our situation. And we desperately need the rest of the body of Christ uh, for that. So they can help us in a time of crisis to bear the burden that we're faced with. Paul wrote to the Galatians and he said, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. There are burdens in life that only you can carry between you and God. They are intended to only be carried between you and God. That problem, that situation, it's you, it's him. Everything that will happen will happen between the two of you. But there are other circumstances that come into every one of our lives as Christians that outstrip our personal resources. We need to involve other people and other Christians in them to help us carry the burden of the season that we find ourselves in. And it doesn't matter how strong you are, how independent you are, you will find yourself sooner or later in a situation where you need other Christians to help you, to encourage you through the season that you're in, to help bring perspective to you in that situation that you're in to keep health, spiritual health around you while you work your way through that situation. Nobody escapes that because the body of Christ is the body of Christ. And God is very interested in us being interconnected. The body of Christ refers to Christians all around the world. There no single portion of a body can survive independent of the rest of the body. We depend on the rest of the body for health, for perspective, for direction. And the same thing is true of every single one of us as Christians. Sooner or later, we hit that place. And that's why there's no such thing biblically of what is known as this Lone Ranger Christianity. To be out on my own, dis, 
uh, connected with other members of the body of Christ is to really put myself in a very vulnerable place, in a dangerous place, during a time of crisis. He looked at it and he said, I'm going to gather where spiritual people gather because I need them right now. I, the, oftentimes, it takes a crisis for a Christian to move from a place of kind of independence and, you know, uh, being solitary in their relationship with the Lord into developing these kind of relationships with other members of the body of Christ. It doesn't come naturally to me at all, at all. By nature, I am a very private person. Not by desire, by nature. I have to fight what in an unbelievable strength within my nature uh, to share what is personal to me with other people, let alone receive help from other people to get me through a crisis. But it doesn't matter how private we are or how strong we are, ultimately we find ourselves needing to do it. For years, for decades in my Christian life, I handled the problems that came my way, no matter how big they were or how bad they were, I handled them alone between me and God. I wouldn't involve other people. I, it, it just was internal. I just couldn't do it. I didn't know how to do it. And then ultimately things happen in your life where you realize this is a situation where I don't trust how that I see this clearly. I don't trust that I don't have a blind spot here. I don't trust the decision that I might come to here. I'm going to involve deeply spiritual people to help me see this, assess it, and understand what the scriptures say about how to go from here to here. All of us need it. And Hezekiah was very wise. Here he's the king. And and you look and say, what is the king doing? He's supposed to have it all together. He can't be running to the temple and looking like he needs people like this. He's got to portray general perfection or nobody's going to think highly of him. And so often we carry the same thing over into our spirituality. If we make any need known in our life or that we need anybody else in life, that somehow they're going to think less of us. But that's what God intends every person's Christian life to be. Ultimately, we will all find ourselves in that place. You may be here this morning in the middle of a great crisis and you say, you know, in terms of, of spiritual people and, and, uh, and, and, you know, where do I take this? I, I'm, I don't know. I don't have these kind of relationships in my life and, and all. And Well, don't be hesitant to come forward after the service. There's be pastors and other men and women up in front. They'd love to, to pray with you. Or you can always make an appointment at the church and come in and see one of the pastors in a time of crisis to say, you know, candidly, I don't know any other Christians in my life. I'm a new Christian. Or, you know, I've walked with the Lord for a while, but honestly, all the Christians I know, I so, I, I so don't consider them spiritual people with anything to offer to me. Who can I turn to? And you may not have anyone to turn to, but it doesn't mean that those people don't exist. And they exist in every local church. And these are just two places within this church that you can turn to someone while you are developing these other relationships. 
It's so easy if the devil gets a person in a great crisis and isolates them. The Satan is referred to as a roaring lion going about seeking whom he may devour. And he's not so worried about the world. It's about Christians. You watch all those kind of animal kingdom shows or whatever they call them now, the Wilderness Channel or whatever. We all watch to see something get eaten. Admit it. So we see these things and we see this lion hit these herds of, you know, whether it's a flock or a herd or whatever, and they just make a run for it and they just want to see that one animal that, that cuts itself off. Doomed. Doomed at that moment. Now that, that thing is, once it's separated from that herd, now that, that lion is going to really go after it. And it's a perfect picture of what the devil does if a Christian isolates themselves from fellowship and from Christian Uh, relationships at a time of great crisis. We need each other for encouragement, for perspective, and for maintaining spiritual health. The book of Ecclesiastes chapter 4, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. Proverbs 27 is iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. Speaking of this very thing that we're talking about here this morning, notice too, number three, that Hezekiah reached out to the prophet Isaiah for prayer concerning the situation that he was in. And that's all there in verses three and four. During a time of crisis, it's very important to seek out the prayer of spiritual Saints, It's important for every single Christian to have two, three, four people that you can approach immediately at the drop of a hat when a crisis comes into your life. People that you know, number one, they know you inside and out. Number two, they love you. Number three, they're spiritual people. Number four, they pray. And if you are a Christian here this morning, and I don't say it in a confrontive way, I say it in a loving way, so uh, uh, for a, a truth that's important to understand, to experience a, a, an authentic Christianity that you will need and that I will need, if you don't have two or three Christian friends, you can call for prayer immediately at the drop of a hat then you may be a Christian who is very well connected with God, but you are inadequately connected with his body. And you, no matter how well connected you are with God, that will not take the place of also the importance of being well connected with the body of Christ. And getting to know those who for instance, in terms of establishing these kind of relationships with that two, three, that four, sometimes that group is going to come out of the people that sit around you week in and week out in the course of a church service. So little by little, it's okay, share the love of the Lord, you say hi and this, and then one day you look over and instead of just hi and how you doing and everything and great, everything's for somebody, you'll look at somebody and you'll say, something just happened major in that person's life. And after the service, you say, hey, listen, I didn't have a chance to ask you before, but what in the world is going on here? I mean, some bomb went off in the last week because you're not the person I see every week or whatever it might be. And pretty soon a relationship connects. 
just within the circle of, of friends or peers that are around you within the fellowship. Smaller groups. Home fellowships are great for this. Where if you sit and you say, I don't have that two, three, or four people that I could immediately approach in this kind of way for prayer, then one of the ways, again, Access the church. Access those that will be praying up in front. You can drop in any time and someone will be here to pray for you at the church. But in terms of developing your own group, home fellowships are great for that. Great groups that are smaller than the group here on the Sunday morning make it easier where you're in settings where there are 5, 10, 15, 20 people. And, and it is a, an environment where not just one person is speaking for the bulk of the time like I do in this particular room. And pretty soon people are sharing needs in their life, you're sharing, and the relationships develop. And you won't have this kind of relationship with all 15 people in the home fellowship, but you get one or two out of it. And then you go to the men's Bible study or the women's Bible study, the small groups that are a part of that, and another relationship or two gets added to your life. Christian service is a great place to develop those kind of relationships. People that work out in the parking lot, and you look and say, what are they doing? I mean, they're just doing like this physical thing, making sure nobody robs us while we're gone, you know, while we're in church. Isn't America wonderful? But I mean, this is what the world's becoming for the whole world in the last days. But that's what they're doing out there. But a funny thing happens. These folks are a team. They serve together. They see each other each week. They share a little bit about their lives. Pretty soon they got a relationship, and pretty soon one or two of them is the person that you call when a crisis hits in your life. Christian service is very important for the Christian service but also for the relationships that develop out of it. And whether working in the children's ministry or in any area within a local church. And it's important for those uh, in all these different settings where those kind of relationships uh, develop and to take opportunity of that and to never quit, never to be satisfied until you have that group. If something hit in my life today, here are, here I can tell you off the top of my head, here are the three or four people I could call immediately. We need that in place before the crisis uh, comes. Authentic kind of New Testament Christianity is one where our lives are not just deeply connected with God, but our lives are deeply connected with other Christians. American Christianity is very often not a very biblical Christianity. It's very often very independent, very individualistic, because that's what's nurtured and emphasized and rewarded within our culture. But it can leave us with this individual, I've got my walk with God, I'm happy with that, everybody else can take a hike. We wouldn't put it in those terms, but I'm not interested in their help, and I'm sure not interested in helping anyone. That's not, that's not the Christianity that Jesus died on the cross to provide us uh, with. And so when there's that, this individualistic, in, uh, independent kind of Christianity that's so far from what we read in the New Testament, it leaves us very, very ill-equipped when a great crisis occurs within our life. And God wants those things in place, and he will work very hard to establish those kind of relationships in our life. He's got them for each of us. You believe that. Again, use the church. Use these people that you don't know, but they've been screened by somebody. And know that they're safe. 
while all of these other things are, these other relationships are developing. Now, fourth and and vitally, uh, we notice that Hezekiah took the crisis to God in prayer uh, himself. And we need to do the same thing. And I don't want to unpack all of this, but I want us to notice a handful of things here. Hezekiah lays the whole problem before God. He lays the whole crisis out before the Lord. It's one of the most beautiful pictures to me, it doesn't have to be for you, but to me in all of the Bible. I can't tell you how many times the Lord's brought it back to my remembrance. Here is this letter that's been sent to him by Sennacherib that contains all of these threats. And what does he do with it? He goes into the temple. He bows down undoubtedly on his knees. He puts his hands out before the Lord in that position. And he lays the letter out before God there in the setting of that temple. He lays it out before the Lord. I, would lo- I just want this picture to be in the mind of every single person that is under my pastoral care for it to be brought to our remembrance. a beautiful beautiful picture. And when he lays that letter out before the Lord, what he's doing is he's presenting the whole situation to God and, and, and saying, Lord, here's what's going on in my life. And he lays it out. Now, most of us, a crisis doesn't come into our life in the form of a letter. If it does, you're free to do exactly what he did here. And we don't have a temple to go to. We don't need a temple. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit. What this looks like in our lives is something comes into our life that creates a crisis and we go, say, into our bedroom alone, close the door, kneel at the end of the bed, and then we lay our hands out on the bed and we begin to cry out to the Lord related to what it is that's just happened in our life or the news that we've gotten. If that has come to you in the form of a letter, then put the letter before him. But most often it doesn't come in the form of a letter. And so what we will need to do is communicate the situation to the Lord ourselves. Our letter will be verbal in terms of presenting the problem uh, to the Lord. The psalmist put it this way in terms of this kind of prayer before God. In Psalm 62, he said, trust in him, that is the Lord, at all times, you people. And then here it is, pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. And that word for pour and that pour out your heart to him, the word literally means to spill. And when you spill a glass of milk, as we had did frequently growing up, my brother and I, uncoordinated or I don't know what, we spilled a lot of milk on that dinner table. But when you spill something, all of it comes out of the glass. And that's the invitation that God gives to us, and that's what Hezekiah does here. He pours his whole heart out to the Lord, and we need to do the same thing. Tell God all about it, every detail about it. And God, he, she said this, and then he did this, and then, Lord, you know that's not fair, and you know that's not the truth about the situation, and, Lord, that hurts me. Talk to him about every hurt, every injustice about the situation, every fear that the situation produces, and just be honest and open with God. And do it not because he doesn't know about it. I never pray to God and God says, whoa, 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 wait a second. Let me get a pad out here. You're telling me all kinds of stuff I don't know. He knows everything. 
So when in this mode, as Hezekiah is laying this out, when we're in a crisis and we pray to the Lord, we're not informing him of anything that we don't know, but we're doing it not for his benefit, but for our benefit. When we hit a situation like this, our greatest need is to talk this over with someone who is safe, someone who is wise, someone who is loving. And God is that someone for the child of God. And so we turn to God and we begin to tell him everything and tell him everything, even though you know he knows everything ahead of time, because you have a need to say it. I have a need to say it. And God joins the conversation. Prayer is a conversation. God will join that conversation. I think most of us that have walked with the Lord for a while, we've had this experience in our life where some bomb has gone off in our life. We go into just kind of a place like this where we begin to pray with the Lord. We're frantic. We're upset. We don't know what to do. What is this going to mean not only for me but for my family and for everybody else who depends on me and the business or whatever it might be? And we begin to pray to God, and the prayers begin like so many of the Psalms do, where it's just frantic and it's panic and it's crying out to God, and I'm going to die and I'm not going to see another day and then pretty soon as the prayer goes on and we talk and we talk and we talk and then pretty soon things start to clarify a little bit and then God brings a passage to our remembrance that we haven't thought about in five years but he brings it to our mind he's engaging in the conversation he brings a song to our remembrance we sang that song 25 years ago. I haven't thought about it since. And he says, that song gives you the perspective I want you to have in this situation. He gives you a word of wisdom. He gives you a word of knowledge. And pretty soon we realize I'm not the frantic person that I began in this prayer with. And so often by the time we get up and we leave the room, we're completely changed by virtue of the conversation. And so pour our whole heart out to him That way he can then begin to address those issues, all of them individually, large, small, all of them as we lay them out to him, and then he begins to talk them over with us in his own way. And he does it. He engages in in that way, that, that beautiful sense that we get up and we realize God just met me in a conversation uh, here and and uh, in, got involved in it and now I see things in a way that I could never have seen them apart from his involvement. Let me say this. We don't know anything about any situation in our life until we know how God sees it. We don't know anything about it. Until God speaks to us, and he speaks to us in prayer. Until he says, listen, this isn't something you have to sweat. I'll take care of it. Or you need to do A, B, C, X, Y, Z, or whatever it might be. Until we know how he sees the situation, we don't know anything about our situation. And it doesn't matter whether how I see the situation, how others see the situation, how much counsel I can get from other people. It's God that is the authoritative voice. And so we need to go to him in prayer and say, Lord, here it is. I lay the whole thing out. What do you want to say to me? And he will join that conversation. Second, we notice concerning his prayer, 
we pray with the realization that God considers our problems to be his problems. Now believe that about your problems. God doesn't want your problems to remain your problems. God wants your problems, our problems, to become his problems. He wants us to the moment in time, just as Hezekiah does here, to lift us up in prayer to God, and this problem moves from being my problem to being his problem, and then now, God, what do you want to tell me to do to fix your problem that I've given to you? You say, oh, come on, you're going way too far. You can't, you can't expect God to take, I can't expect God to take my problem and make it his problem. You're going to have to give me another verse for that. I'll give you another verse. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7. Peter said, casting all your cares on him. Why? Because he cares for you. That's quite an invitation to cast all of our cares upon him. And the idea is not that I will then cast it on him, take it back, or that he will shove it back. The idea is that I cast it on him and he now makes it his own. And he does so because he cares for us. And we have the freedom as Christians to come in the middle of a crisis and say, Lord, at your invitation, I take this and I cast it upon you to carry and to solve in your way and in your time. And to do so is to do the most powerful thing that a person can do in a situation. Sometimes people say, well, have you prayed about it? This thing's going on. And what do you mean? What are you going to do about it? Well, I prayed about it. What do you mean you're going to pray about it? You've got to get to every bank in town and get a loan related to this, and you need to call in every favor you've got out in the business community. You need to really do something. The most powerful thing we can do in a situation is to pray. Because it moves the problem from being our problem to God's problem. And God begins to go to work on that problem. And then we begin to trust God to uh, work that problem out on our behalf. It, It is never, when I give my problem to God, it is never to do something that's idle or irresponsible. That's the most responsible, active, powerful thing I can do concerning my situation, is to get it into his hands and say, Now, Lord, I need your wisdom for the part that I play in what needs to happen here. Have you ever had somebody in your life that you give them something, a situation, an errand or whatever, you give it to them, and you know it's done. They never fail. Absolutely. Unfailingly faithful people. And those kind of people are pretty special. You say, listen. I got, you got to get this money to the bank before it closes at three because if you don't, this is what's going to happen. You hand it to them. There's certain people you hand it to them and you'd wring your hands all day long. Oh, uh, 301, you'd give them a call. Did you do it? You'd be a nervous wreck because they're not faithful people or they're just, well, they're nice, but they're not faithful people. And then other people, you give it to them and you say, I don't even have to think about it again. And we just walk the rest of the day in peace. It's done. I gave it to him. I gave it to so-and-so. You know, it's done. It's over. How much more when we give something into the hands of God who will never fail, never fail us in taking care of us. And then we can say, I've given it to God. And now I know he's going to take care of this. And then to walk in that peace. I want you to notice, too, that at the beginning of this prayer, 
Hezekiah spent quite a bit of time concentrating on God. You notice in verse 16 as he's praying, he refers to the Lord, O Lord of hosts. He reminds himself that God is the God of an army too, an angelic army. Yes, Sennacherib's out there with his 185,000 Assyrian soldiers, but God's got an army of uh, of angels. And always, as we know, it only took one angel to take care of the one problem. So he calls the Lord, the Lord of hosts, the one who dwells between the cherubim. I'm praying to God whose home and throne is in heaven. You are God, you alone. You made the heavens and the earth. Sennacherib could never do that. My God has done that. And did Hezekiah then pray these, was he, were these vain repetitions that he's using all of these different names for God early on uh, in the prayer? Or did he use all these different names because God had forgotten these things and he needed to be reminded of who he was? was it, did he do it for God's sake or did he do it for his own sake? It was for Hezekiah's sake. He didn't attempt to cast his care upon God until in his spirit, in his inner man, he had a fresh revelation. Not yesterday's revelation. Not last week's revelation. But a fresh revelation from the Holy Spirit in this crisis of how big his God was. And that he was entrusting this to a God who is infinitely greater than every problem we will ever give to him. And that's why he spent so much time talking about the Lord, talking about God, and all of the ways that he did. And so the importance of praying to the Lord, praising the Lord, worshiping the Lord, and in this casting of our cares upon him, but praising him, adoring him, worshiping him until the... uh, until my consciousness of how big he is, it, it becomes greater than my consciousness of how big my problem is. Until I go from being overwhelmed by my problem to being overwhelmed with the greatness of God. And it happens. It's not just a phrase in a sermon. It happens. And people sometimes will cast our cares upon the Lord. I know all about it. But I haven't taken the time to really think in a fresh way of the person that I'm leaving it with. And then what happens to us? We cast it on him, we get up, we take it back out of his hands, and we leave the room. Because we don't believe he'll take care of it or he can take care of it. Because we didn't spend enough time thinking about how big he is and being overwhelmed with his greatness until there's this place that this where I'm being overwhelmed by my problem then goes out of the way. And that's a key thing to do in prayer, is to wait until that happens. That's why people sometimes they want, how long do I spend in prayer in a circumstance or a situation like this? Well, at least until that happens in a crisis. That can happen in five minutes. That can happen in an hour. That can happen in five hours. But however long it takes to where I am no longer overwhelmed by the greatness of my problem, but I am now overwhelmed by the greatness of God. And that's what Hezekiah did, and it's very, very important. So important that Jesus, when he taught us as his disciples on how to pray, he said, pray after this manner. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. 
before we get to the daily bread, before we get to the forgiveness, before we get to the spiritual warfare and the temptations we're going to face in life, all of the big things that are the immediate crisis of life, Jesus said, I want you to begin there, our Father which art in heaven, and settle on that little phrase that begins that prayer until you have that consciousness that that's who I'm praying to, that's who I'm lifting my needs up, and then once you have that consciousness, then move on to the rest of the prayer. And it's real, and it's important, and God will meet with us in that place. This is who I'm praying to. This is who I'm entrusting the situation to. I think it's important, verse 20, to be specific in your request. He just said, save us from his hand. Specific. This is what I need, God. Well, you know, maybe if perhaps in a manner of speaking, if you wouldn't mind, and then could, and then I don't know if you could, you know, and then we'd never get to, well, what do, what do you want? So specific. He said, listen, this is what we need. Save us from his hand so that when God then answers the prayer, we can recognize it. Don't ever hesitate to ask for something specifically. Sometimes people will not pray to the Lord because they think, well, God's going to do anything. He's going to do whatever he's going to do anyway. It doesn't really matter what I say. And so, you know, uh, it, prayer is this mysterious thing, and, and he's going to accomplish his will, and my prayers don't matter. But they do matter. Notice in verse 21, after the prayer is over, then Isaiah, the son of Amos, he sent to Hezekiah saying, thus says the Lord God of Israel. And then notice that next word, because you have prayed to me. The answer to this prayer came out of prayer. And we don't know what God would have done or wouldn't have done independent of prayer. We know that this happened in response to prayer. And so prayer does make a difference. And that because is an important word. And as I'm prone to say concerning prayer, no situation that we pray for is the same after we've prayed as it was before we prayed. Something has happened in the physical, in the spiritual realm that wouldn't have otherwise happened independent of the prayer. Prayer always makes a difference. Now let me uh, almost close with this. Just being honest, so it won't be long. Some of your hearts are sinking already, so can we, can we get you a blanket or something? So. Never let past failure keep you from coming to the Lord in prayer in desperation. Hezekiah fed into this problem, this crisis. He was the king. He was a great king. He was a godly king, but he wasn't a perfect king. And he's the one that led the nation to attempt to establish a confederation with Egypt when God was saying through Isaiah over and over and over again, no, don't do it. Just trust in me. Just trust in me. He didn't do it. And here he is, he's paying off with gold and money Assyria to back off and instead of just trusting God to take care of the situation. And yet when the crisis came, when he could have just 
kicked himself in the backside all the way around the block over saying, listen, I'm the one that didn't listen to God. I'm the weak. I could have handled this altogether different. I bear some responsibility for the situation that I'm in. And instead of condemning himself away or saying, how in the world can I approach God when I'm a part of the problem here? He didn't allow any of that to stop him. He came right to the Lord and brought it to the Lord, strong in the grace of God. And he approached the throne that is described for us as Christians, the throne of God that is called the throne of grace, from which God only dispenses grace and mercy in our time of need. Do not allow today or ever your failure or your sin to keep you from coming boldly and desperately to God in your time of need. And that's an important point. And then finally here, know that God will answer your prayer. And in verse 36, God sent an angel forth and supernaturally wiped out that entire army. He took care of the threat. He did it his own way in his own time. And so he responds to all prayers. Whether it has to do with the history of the Jewish people in the Old Testament or it has to do with just a single single person, single saint, that's alive today, all of these prayers are important to him and expect an answer because an answer is coming. And so crises in life, they come quickly, they come unexpectedly, they rarely occur at convenient times. And so most often when they do occur, the best that we can do is to now handle them in a spiritual way, in a way that allows God to become as involved as he fully wants to involve. And so the importance of drawing even closer to God and his people, the importance of calling on others to pray for us, and then to pray to God himself, knowing that as we cast our cares upon him, he really does care for us, and then he will actively make our problem his problem and he's very good at fixing problems and he wants that to happen so that we can rest in his wisdom and his power and in his love god spoke through jeremiah the prophet he said behold i am the god of all flesh is anything too difficult for me and the obvious answer is No. God wants to be involved in every circumstance in our life and certainly every crisis. If you sit here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, sometimes people come to know the Lord, they become Christians because of a crisis just like this. They realize this is way bigger than me, way bigger than anything. I have no hope. I won't survive this. I won't survive this based upon my resources. If there's a God, God, if you are there, And there is a God who is there. And if it's a crisis that has brought you here into this place today, this God wants to become your God. He wants to become your heavenly father. Jesus wants to become your savior and have this place in your life. Life is hard for people. And God wants to come into our lives and be what he alone can be. And there are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after this service And they'd love to pray with you to begin that relationship with God that you've been created for. And it's just a prayer away. 
you may have come in here to church today and you're not in a crisis. You're sitting on top of the world. You need the Savior as much as anybody else does. And he's eager to forgive your sins and deliver you from the emptiness and the loneliness and the frustration of life lived apart from God. So today's the day of salvation for you as well. You come forward and allow them to pray with you and for you as well. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Father, thank you for the realization that that crisis has come and they're big. And while they surprise us and can overwhelm us, that there's a way to handle them and to navigate the circumstance and the crisis. And we thank you for the very, very practical instruction from your word. And Lord, we pray that for the men and women that stand before you in this room and in the overflow room that are in just such a place today, and as they leave this place and begin to take steps of faith and obedience to what we've looked at in your word today, that you would confirm your word with accompanying signs and wonders. Lord, we've done some sanctified boasting in you today, and it's wonderful. Now come behind it, Lord, and confirm every bit of this glorious truth about you in our lives, in the crises that we face today, and in the crises that we will face between now and heaven And thank you that we will one day be in that place where there will be no crisis. And we thank you for the blood, the life of our Savior that has made that possible. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I have two announcements for you.